The Sobey Art Award is Canada's most prestigious contemporary art prize, bringing national and international attention to Canadian artists age 40 and under. Stephanie Kamalang was the winner for 2019, picking up the $100,000 top prize. Learn more about Stephanie and the four Sobey finalists in the two-part series, The New Masters on CBC Ideas. For more information about the award, visit www.gallery.ca slash Sobey. This is a CBC Original Podcast. Hey, this is Lou. Just a quick heads up. There's a little bit of language in this episode that might not be appropriate for all listeners. She picked me up at the station, and I asked her to pull over before we go anywhere. And she said, He did it, didn't he? I told her to open the window if she needed to scream. From CBC, this is Love Me, a show about the messiness of human connection. I'm Lou. Episode 3. Dear Dad. A few years ago, my sister and I were visiting my parents for Father's Day. And we were hanging out, and there was a quiz in the local paper. What kind of dad do you have? You answered a bunch of questions, you totaled up your score, and then it rated your dad on a scale of 1 to 5. My sister and I took the quiz at the exact same time. And when I took the quiz, my dad got a three. It said something like, well, not a bad dad, kind of distant, but could be worse. And when my sister took the quiz, our dad got a five, the highest score. It said, congratulations, you have the ideal dad. And the thing is, growing up, I was the daddy's girl. But somewhere along the line... Things got complicated, as they often do. Today we bring you two stories that try to navigate those murky waters of fatherhood. The first is a short story by Pasha Mala. The film we made about dads. In the first scene of the film we made about dads, we captured them as children well before they actually became dads themselves. Back when their own dads were full-on capital-D dads. Dads with mustaches. Dads who had been in the war. We got some great shots of the not-yet-dads at age eight swinging from the monkey bars on the school playground. Afterwards, we interviewed them about what they wanted to be when they grew up. Their answers? Astronaut, fireman, psychiatrist, florist, psycho killer, Oscar Robertson. We asked them to describe their own dads in one word. The response was unanimous. Mean. Next, we documented the dads at 16, getting hand jobs on the couch. The dads were oblivious and said nothing, just rolled over on top of their lovers and fully clothed, humped away until something damp oozed through their jeans. In college, the dads grew beards. They bought cars and tried acid. We'd run out of funding for our film and couldn't shoot. Remember this for us, we told the dads, who were giggling at rain. A few years later, we received a grant and resumed filming. By then, the dads were done college and had found wives to marry. At the altars, the dad said, I do. 
And the wives said, I do. And the dads kissed their new wives, and the wives kissed back. And then they ran out of the church while people threw rice at them and cheered. The dads and their wives went to Niagara Falls, where they both stared silently into all that water and thought, Hmm. Later, they fell asleep with their shoes on. Maybe edit in some love, we told the post-production crew, who nodded and promised they would. The dads and wives bought houses. The dads were stuck in middle management, but they built workshops in their garages. That's my workshop in there, they told the wives. That's my space. We went out into the garages and panned our cameras over the workbenches and the tools that would rarely get used. This is golden stuff, we said to each other. We were making a film about dads. There were moments we didn't get, like when the dads told us about nights of laughter with their wives, or moments of tenderness or sorrow, a walk in the park and ducks. But the cinematographer's union only allowed us a cameraman for a certain number of hours. We would show up in the morning and the dads would say, you should have seen us last night, but we could only shrug. Then the wives got pregnant, and nine months later, a baby plopped out like a prize. We would have to track down some stock footage for this, because the doctors wouldn't let the film crew into the delivery rooms. At the hospitals, the dads stood in the hallway with unlit cigars wagging from their mouths, talking to anyone who would listen. My wife is having a baby, they hollered at strangers, thrusting a cigar in whoever's direction. When the dads saw the babies, shriveled and purple in their wives' arms, they declared, That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And then cupped the babies' skulls in their hands like they were testing a fruit. The babies cooed and gurgled, and so did the dads. It was unclear who was imitating whom. Two years later, there was a plan for another baby and the process repeated itself. With two kids, the dads were really cooking. Along with the children, they had gas barbecues, station wagons, digital cable. They were no longer stuck in middle management. They were somewhere better. The kids got older, and the dads coached their soccer teams. The dads drank beer on Sunday afternoons and watched football. But every so often, the dads might tell us something that didn't seem to fit. I have season tickets to the opera, they might say. Or, it's fine if one of my kids turns out gay. This was the sort of stuff we would later make sure to have our editors snip right out of the film. When it was time for the children to move away from home, the dads were strong. The wives wept in the driveways as the children pulled away with couches strapped to the roofs of their cars. And the dads held the wives and stroked their hair. In post-production, it would be easy for us to erase the tears that ran down the dads' faces. Then the dads became granddads. Their sons were now dads themselves. The sons brought the grandchildren over, and the dads crouched in front of them on the floor and produced noises similar to those they had once made at their own children. Then, the dads got cancer of the prostate. It was difficult to sit down. They were dying. We made a note that we would score this segment of the film with a single cello, sawing away, sad and lonely. 
When the dads died, no one knew quite what to say. At the funerals, co-workers made speeches about dedication that left everyone feeling empty. There were flowers and open coffins with the dads lying inside, silent and still. It was his time, declared the wives, sensibly. They left and went back home to stand in the parlors of their houses, where they nibbled triangular sandwiches, accepting the condolences of family and strangers with polite nods, whispering, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. When it was all over, when the wives were left alone in their houses, when even the children had driven away in their minivans, we rushed back to the studio to put together a rough cut of our film about dads. We had spent years making a film about dads. We had been there for all the crucial moments. There were reels and reels of film piled up around us in the studio. But we just sat there, looking around, at the stacks, at one another, not quite sure where to begin. According to Jewish faith, there's no everlasting hell where people burn for their sins. But there is a purgatory where troubled souls must go to be cleansed. This cleansing can take up to 12 months. If a soul has left behind something light and good, then the soul can rise to its final resting place. And so when a parent dies, any child left behind is supposed to spend a year saying Kaddish, a prayer of mourning, to help their parent's soul find peace. It's a connection between one generation and the next, where the new generation has the power to redeem the old. This should be my year of saying Kaddish for my dad. But I don't know if I can. I know that there was probably no other way it was going to end. But there were two people, the man I married, and the man who killed himself. And the man I married gradually became that man. But I still remember the man I married. I, like, like, just, oh. I found out I, about 22 hours ago, that my dad shot himself. Um, I don't know who to be grieving. Month one. Shock. When I found out that my dad committed suicide, I took the train home to tell my mom. She picked me up at the station, and I asked her to pull over before we go anywhere. And she said, He did it, didn't he? I told her to open the window if she needed to scream. My dad shot himself while police were trying to get into his apartment to serve him eviction papers. He hadn't paid his rent in six months. 
When I went to his place to clean out his things, he had four plasma screen TVs, but no electricity to turn them on. Just blank screens reflecting back at him, like mirrors. What did I learn today? Um, He was over $70,000 in debt. He barricaded the front door. And um, sometime in between him finding out they were coming to evict him and barricading the door, he came into the room where I'm now sitting. In the bathroom where my dad shot himself. I'm probably sitting on the tub. Bang. My dad was once a millionaire, but he died a convicted felon with a mountain of credit card debt looming over him. If my dad were here, he would say that the debt is what killed him, that he was constantly being struck by thunderbolts from God and that nothing was his fault. For a long time, I went along with that story, but it wasn't the debt. It wasn't some curse from God. It was him. It was something broken in him. Month two, haunting. I spend the first two months trying to figure out how to move forward. I go see a rabbi who tells me that until the Kaddish is performed, the sins of the father are handed down to the son. I can feel the echo of my dad's legacy reverberating into my day-to-day, like a ghost haunting me. But before I can put him to rest, I need to follow my dad's echo back to his original shouts to understand what it was that was haunting him. When I was three, my dad pled guilty to mail fraud and tax evasion. I remember being kept home from school one morning because my dad's name was in the paper under the headline, When Crime Pays. The facts look something like this. My dad and his dad ran a supermarket chain, and for years, they were involved in a massive coupon scam. Imagine you clip out a coupon and use it to get 50 cents off your peanut butter at the grocery store. The store then sends a coupon clipping to the company that issued it and gets reimbursed for that 50-cent discount. Now imagine the same scenario, only there's no customer, there's no jar of peanut butter, there's only the money being reimbursed. That was the scam. My dad and grandfather got people at old age homes to clip coupons for products that were never actually sold. Hundreds of thousands of coupons. They stole $8.5 million that way. Then they got caught. Month three, blame. Growing up, I was taught to believe that my grandfather was the villain that the coupon scheme was his idea, and that my dad was just an innocent fall guy. My grandfather was dying of cancer when they got caught, and so my dad was the one who got punished. Like many white-collar criminals, my dad avoided jail time by repaying what he stole, but he felt wronged in a way that he never recovered from. And so when my grandfather died, my dad refused to say Kaddish for him. He said his father belonged in hell, an everlasting hell. 
And now, apparently, it's my job to redeem both their souls. Like redeeming fake coupons for a peaceful afterlife. Month four. Faking it. Before I was born, there were parties in big gaudy houses and a red Porsche with a vanity license plate that read, forget it. For, get it. But by the time I was old enough to remember, my dad was unemployed. He said no one would hire him because of his criminal record. Though mostly, it seemed like he wasn't really trying. He would mope around the house, mumbling about being betrayed by his father. I tried bonding with him through mindless TV. I remember one time watching Project Runway together, and he kept calling one of the female contestants a bitch. I told him that she was only doing what the other contestants were doing, except the rest of them happened to be men. He stopped speaking for the rest of the show. When it was finished, he said I could either watch with him his way, or I could watch by myself. From then on, whenever we'd butt heads, I'd pretend he was right, no matter how ridiculous he seemed. For my dad, you were either with him or against him. There was no in-between. Not even God was exempt. One year, he fasted for Yom Kippur. He did that quote for God, unquote. And then we didn't win the lottery. I swear to God, this is true. He said, God fucked him. He never was going to do it again because we should have won the lottery. I swear. I mean, that's insane, but it's true. My dad felt betrayed by everyone he knew. And one by one, people stopped putting up with his bullshit. By the time he died, he hadn't spoken to anyone in my family for over a year. Except for me. Month five. Digging. My dad's coupon scam conviction happened 20 years ago. He had 20 years to get back on his feet. But somehow, he just couldn't. I remember him once saying he spoke to somebody at Acme and they wanted to pay him $26,000 a year. And how could he ever work for that? And I remember saying to him, if I make 26 and you make 26, we make 50. Oh, that was just like I may have as well told him to go work on Mars. I remember him saying this to me. I'll kill myself. You'll still have my life insurance. You'll get a million dollars. I said to him, Jeff, if you kill yourself, you're going to kill the kids. How can you possibly even consider that? You've got two sons who need you. And he kind of said, that's a relief. It was like I gave him permission to be alive. My dad dug himself further into debt to keep up the lifestyle he'd grown accustomed to. He remortgaged our house multiple times, forging my mom's signature. He stole her jewelry when they were finally divorcing. He spent the $100,000 my grandfather left me for college. I never confronted him about any of it. I do my best not to think about who he actually was, or who I apparently was to him, because I wanted a dad. Month six, loss. This month, I turned 26, and it was my first birthday for the rest of my birthdays. 
where I did not get a call from my dad. Months seven, eight, and nine. Anger and resentment. He never called to say goodbye. Month 10. Doubt. I finally get to see the suicide notes my dad left. They've been confiscated by the police when they found his body. There are many drafts. Some are handwritten on scraps of paper. They say things like, I treated people so well, yet they did nothing for me. And, it looks like the time has come. This is no way to live. Then there's a longer note typed up four pages long. He first mentions me on page three. And so we come to Grant, the one person I owe an apology, a very large apology. I was not a good enough father to you, and I'm very, very sorry. I dropped the ball with you. My biggest regret in my life amongst some big regrets. I know really little of you in your life. I'm very sorry that you ended up with any school debt. I told myself that my life insurance would solve that, but that's gone. I had a lot of people betray me, but to my shame, I betrayed you and not being the father I wanted to be for you. I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me, but I understand if you cannot. Yeah, I'm done for now. I can't. I wish I could end it there, but there's another note. It's a handwritten list of so-called betrayals, which include, quote, a son who doesn't give a shit about me or my life. None of the notes are dated, so I don't know which version he wrote first. If he died feeling disappointed in me, or if he died hoping for my forgiveness. If he hadn't been so insecure, I think that he would have had the humility to have a bread wrap, to make $50,000 a year, and not, like, do you know what I'm saying? He couldn't let down that, I must be perfect, I must be rich. His ego was so tied up in that box that he put himself in, you know, he couldn't push that mop and broom. Do you think that's because he didn't think anyone could love him if he was somebody who was managing a grocery store? I don't think he could love him. I don't think he could look in the mirror. Month 11. Letting go. Ever since he died, I've been trying to find an answer as to why my dad was the way he was. But there is no moment of revelation. I didn't know him well enough while he was alive to be able to fully understand him now that he's dead. But this past year, instead of running from his ghost, I've turned around to listen to his wailing and it's given us a chance to have the honest relationship we never had before. It turns out the Kaddish also comes from a ghost story. The ghost of a father is suffering for his sins when he asks a wise rabbi for help. The spirit says, Nothing can be done for me. I'm already dead. But maybe you can help my son, who is still alive. The rabbi teaches the son the Kaddish, and as the son speaks the prayer, he finds some relief, for that moment at least, for both he 
and his dad. The Kaddish places the burden of my father's redemption on my shoulders, but it's a burden that's been placed on the shoulders of sons for thousands of years. And there's comfort in that. That through this ritual, an endless stream of fucked up father-son relationships have a chance to be cleansed. Month 12. Kaddish. Traditionally, Kaddish is spoken every day for almost a full year. But it's taken me 12 months just to figure out how to say it on my terms. Dad, I've been digging up your sins in hopes that airing them out will help quiet the echo of your legacy. I want you to know that however bitter you became, however much you pushed everyone else away, I hope that your belief that nothing was ever your fault helped things hurt less for you. I mean that. You didn't live as a good person. You don't get to be remembered as one. But that's irrelevant to how I feel about you. The life you lived was awful for me, but it was human, human and forgivable. I wish I could have had a real relationship with you, with a broken, messy you, while you were here. I wish you could have let that happen. I hope this counts as saying Kaddish and helps us both find some relief. You were responsible for the pain in your life, but I hope you don't have to suffer anymore. I hope you're not suffering anymore. Yikadal, Yikadal, Shamaraba, Balama, Tivru, Chet, Hachu, Viam, Laka, Machatu, Bicholam, Uvilhom, Ufshaye, to call the Yet Israel, the Gadai, even Maal, Kurum, Love Me is produced by Mira Burt-Wintonic and Crystal Duhame. Kaddish was produced with Grant Irving. You can reach him through our website at cbc.ca slash loveme. Earlier in the show, you heard the film we made about dads, adapted from a short story by Pasha Mala. It's from his book, The Withdrawal Method, and it was performed by Brent Skakford. Original theme music by Tim Kingsbury. Scoring music by Murray Lightburn, Additional music by Nolan Schneider and Michael Ray of Mixolodeon. Special thanks to Veronica Simmons for editing help on this episode and to Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, Mark Slutsky, Jeremy Braziller, Leslie Schachter, Shauna Pell, Aaron Leader, Mickey Capper, Noam Hassenfeld, and Allison Broverman. 
Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or at cbc.ca slash loveme. If you like what you hear, why not give us a review on iTunes or share the episode on Facebook? It would help us out a lot. I'm Lou Olkowski. Here's a taste of next week's show. She was totally beautiful. I mean, she would kind of like bat her eyelashes. She had these ridiculously long eyelashes. She would like bat them. And when she saw him, they just had this moment where like time stopped. I would sort of, uh, you know, walk up and interrupt them, kind of like giggling together. And, you know, their heads kind of really close and he would like whisper little secrets to her. It was all just nauseating. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.